Well, so far so good. You ever hear how that happened? This guy, he fell out of the 30-store building, and as he was passing the 25th floor, his friend said, how's it going? He said, so far so good. <laughs> so far so good. Um, this has been the week of hospital visits. Usually things happen in waves, and uh, some of you might not know, but our painter who's been painting our church happens to also be a pastor. He's uh, overseeing one of the campuses of Calvary Christian Church, and uh, they just recently gave birth to uh, their, I don't know, it's like their 16th kid. It's their third. My wife, no, you don't get to correct me if you don't laugh at my jokes. Sorry. All right. <clears throat> and here he is. There it is. Cute little Mateo. Precious, huh? And uh, Mateo is Matthew in Portuguese. And uh, if you, what, what happened was uh, we got the call from him and he said, hey, I'm not going to be able to come and paint because my wife's having the baby. And it was a little nerve-wracking because it was uh, week 30-something, 30 34, 32. And so he left everything. That's why, like, if, you come, if you're going in and out of the doors, don't assume that they're automatic. You can push them and they'll slam right into the wall. He just didn't have time to tweak everything. And, but that was a priority. While he was there, you know, we swung by and Pastor Dylan and I followed up with him and I visited him. We prayed with them and uh, came back to the church. And while we were here, Pastor Dylan got a call from his mother and his mother basically said goodbye to him over the phone. She had been in the hospital for the past few days, and uh, all of a sudden her whole body went black from jaundice to black and blue. Uh, they had 11 doctors trying to figure out what was going on, but basically an autoimmune disease turned, had her body turning on itself. Her kidneys were shutting down, her liver was shutting down, and uh, you know, if you were trying to follow up with me by phone call and I said, hey, I'll get back to you, this is why I didn't get back to you, this kind of stuff would happen. And uh, long story short, we just, uh, I said, Dylan, get, you're getting on a plane. We picked him up. We put him on a plane, send him off to his mom. In, she's in uh, Tucson, Arizona. He landed there. And while he was there, we continued to pray. They began to pray. And God just did a miracle. She's no longer in ICU. They haven't figured everything out. It's not in the clear. But I, this is the thing that happened. When Pastor Dylan came to me, I just think about this, this verse in the book of Acts, where it says, this sickness will not lead to death, but to the glory of God. And I just said, Dylan, I said, I just, Pastor Dylan, I believe this sickness will not lead to death, but to the glory of God. And so I look forward to him coming back. Uh, he'll be back Thursday. And uh, if you've been trying to reach him, that's, that's why. Well, as soon as I dropped him off at the airport, I got a text, please pray. And it was from uh, it was from Nero and his son, Matteo. They discovered that a section of his intestine had never fully opened and developed properly, and it was completely closed off. So they rushed the baby into surgery. They had to remove a section of his, in, of his intestine, and the, the, the goal was to stitch it together. And so I just, I just said, I'm going to go there. I dropped Pastor Dylan off at the airport so he could go see his mom, and then I drove a half hour, went right to uh, Children's Hospital, Boston Children's Hospital, and as soon as I walked in the waiting room, he was sitting there alone, and he broke down and just began to cry. He said, I can't believe that you're here again. I said, of course, you're my painter. And uh, I was, it was really beautiful. I was able to sit with him for about an hour and a half, and the doctors came out with the good news. S surgery was successful, and, uh, and he, little Mateo's doing fine, and he is, uh, he's going to be back doing more painting and stuff, but we're just so grateful 
that God in both of these situations uh, turned it around. I remember years ago, uh, my wife went in for surgery and I was sitting alone in the, in the room, in the, in the waiting room. And this old biker guy from our church, Teddy Freiberger, walks in. He goes, hey, buddy. I'm like, Teddy, what are you doing here? And he said this to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, I remember when my wife had a major surgery, and I sat in the waiting room all alone, and it was torture. And I just said, I never want that to happen to somebody that I love. And so that's why I'm here. And ever since that time, whenever I have an opportunity, sometimes life doesn't afford that, that's why we do that. That's why we have an emergency line in this church. Not if you sprain your ankle or, you know, you got an ingrown toenail or something like that, but you've got a crisis. We want to be there for you, you know, and, and we want to help you, and we love you, and we care for you. Here's what would even make me prouder as a pastor. The day where I walk into a hospital, and uh, no, not that no one's sitting there, but some of you from this community already beat me to it, because we need each other, don't we? Amen. And we should be here for each other. And uh, you have per my permission as a pastor to visit anyone in the hospital at any time, to be there for people, as long as you just give us a call and let us know. Uh, one youth pastor I know, he's famous actually, he's out in California, and he was away at a retreat and couldn't get access to his phone. One of his kids was in a major car accident, was in ICU, and he immediately drove to the hospital. He got out of his car, walked in, and he said, uh, how you doing? My name is uh, Doug Fields. I need to see so-and-so he's i'm his pastor and they looked at him and said yeah good try you're not getting in there his pastor huh he goes his pastor already visited him and he's like no i'm serious i'm his pastor like i'm doug fields i'm famous you know i youth pastor at saddleback church because no you're not his pastor's already visited him multiple occasions and then he looked at the log and he saw that one of his his church members that worked with the youth said, I'm here, I'm like a pastor to him. And he had been there for that crisis when he couldn't be there, that we would be that kind of church. You have permission to be anyone's pastor in this church at any, at any moment. Just let us know what happens so that that doesn't happen. And uh, we don't know. So I also need to and want to uh, share another situation with you. This past Monday, I was given the opportunity to speak at the state house. There was a bill that was put there. Now understand this. You will never hear me say who I voted for. You will never hear me say what party of politics I'm with. See, if I say, man, Obama's my man and I am a Democrat until I die, everyone that's here that's a Republican or a Libertarian or Independent will be like, well, I'm marginalized. And if I say, man, Trump, he's our guy, same thing happens. Everyone that's Democratic would be, he's, see, I don't vote according to a party I vote according to God's word and God's conviction. And here's the thing, there is a separation of church and state. That does not mean that we are not allowed to speak God's righteousness into situations. So the Roe Act is an act that basically said that we it, it was already passed similar in New York. There's a fear that Roe versus Wade might be overturned. And so they said, we wanna give doctors permission. A couple of things this act gives permission for that you might not know and is the reason why you should call your local state representative if you share the same conviction that I do. Number one, they want permission to talk to any minor and be able to talk them into what they think is best for that child's life and have an abortion without consulting you as a parent. That's inappropriate. Nobody loves my kids more than me and nobody should have the right to speak to my kids and bypass me. It's inappropriate. It's an overreach as a parent. Second thing that they want to do right now, up until, if you are pregnant and you have an early um, delivery, just like little Mateo, 
and you uh, give, you are in jeopardy and your child's sick, whether it's like, you know, a thousand different reasons, the answer, what the doctors will do is not abort the child. They will do a C-section and remove the child and put them on premium care. They want permission to be able to continue the process of having permission to do abortions right up into the very day of delivery. The third thing that this act does that I think is in contradiction to God's word is that if they perform an abortion and the child is born and it's still alive, they want to be able to have the right to not give any medical attention to that child but finish what they started. All three of those things, why would I say that? Because I'm political? No. The reason I would say that we need to speak up to these things is not because we're a church that's going to wave any particular flag with a donkey or an elephant on it or blue or red or any of that kind of stuff, but because God's word says this in Psalm 139, you knit me in my mother's womb. All my days were written for me before one of them came to be. He says in Jeremiah chapter 1-5, Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. In Hebrew, if I want to shut you up, you know what I say? Yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know. Shut up. I don't want to hear you talk. If I want you to understand that I hear you with my heart and my head, I say the same word a different way. Aneni yodea. I know. But when God put man and woman on this earth, it said that Adam knew yada. Adam knew Eve. And they bore a child. God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you intimately. Before one of your days started, I had them in my book. And I believe that this is not a political issue. This is an issue, a scriptural issue. Uh, I will never tell you how to vote. I will never tell you who I voted for. And I will never disrespect anyone for the directions that they do. But let me just say this. Number one, we are not only Christians, we are also citizens. And the greatest privilege that we have is to speak to it. I had to wait from 12 o'clock in the morning until 9 o'clock at night until I was given permission to address the group. I had to wait after person, after person, after person. They chose to present this bill on Bunker Hill Day, which meant that every single one of the representatives would not be available to listen to anyone, would not be available to talk to anyone if they were in disagreement with it. So they showed up, they stated their opinion, and they took off. And yet, I've never seen more people at the State House uh, in my entire life. Can I tell you, one of the three things I really, I want my children to be prepared responsibly for life. I want them to be prepared spiritually for life. But I also think as citizens of this great nation, they should also be prepared politically to understand that just because there are different parties in charge of our country, uh, that means that separation of church and state doesn't give us permission to speak up. I believe that we have permission by God to be a prophetic voice. Here's the other sad part to what happened. I had to yield 30 seconds of my three minutes to untie the knots of a lot of rude Christians in the way that they addressed the group. Can I tell you, it's not just what you say, it's being able to say it in a way that somebody hears you. Somebody hears you. We need to be respectful. I can disagree disagreeably. And uh, I encourage you to find out who your local representatives are, for you to take a closer look at the Roe Act, and for you to make your voice and your opinion be heard, because otherwise they will simply make the decisions the way that they think are right and proper. And I think that God has something to say about it. So Father, right now in the name of Jesus, uh, we have no interest in becoming a church that uh, is a political church, is known by a political party, but we are a church of Jesus Christ, and your word is our ruling, and God, you are the king of our heart, 
And so give us the courage, give us the, uh, the ability to do the work that it takes to speak and to share um, what we think you have to say on the matter. And we ask it all. And Lord, right now, I just pray for the governor of this state, Charlie Baker, who has the ability to shoot down this if, this, if the legislation approves it, he has the ability to turn it down. Lord, give him the courage to not make a medical decision and not to make a, a, a legislative decision, but to make a moral decision. Give him that courage in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you're wondering what I do with my spare time. That's some of that stuff. You're kind of wondering what in the world's going on with this picture. Ooh, so glad you asked. I want to continue our series as we've been talking on the prophets, the original spoken word, and we are now into the prophet Hosea. And uh, so, by God's grace, um, may he bless his word. Amen? Why don't you reach in front of you, grab your Bible. If you don't own one, it's like, as far as I'm concerned, every Christian should own a Bible. If you do it digitally, make sure that you click Do Not Disturb. Uh, I wake up every morning and read, read my Bible in a couple of different formats. There's nothing magical but about it, just that it, it's undisturbing. You could, might be a better person at night and read at night, but... Uh, this is how we know who God is, by reading. He said everything he's ever going to say to us, and it's found in this book. And this is like no other book. It's alive. It's living. It's active. God can leap out and speak out into your heart and change your life forever. And as he gives us his word, the challenge is not for us to take the parts that we like and ignore the rest or just never continue deep enough with God that we read it all, but that as we see a contradiction between our life and God's word, Instead of us ignoring it, we change ourselves. We ask God's help and God's grace to, to adjust to this book. That's how we become more like Jesus and more like the author, is that when we're challenged by it, we change. We align with God's truth. And so, Father, again, right now, I just ask your blessing on your word in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start here. Read through this first chapter, Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berei, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And in the, king, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Let me stop right there. Look at me real quick. A couple of things we know about this guy before we get into the message that I really feel that God has for us to help us with. Number one, we have who his father is. The man, his name is uh, Birei. That's all we know about it. That's as far as we can go with it. Someone might have researched that a little further and found something, but... To date, I just don't, I haven't been able to find anything, and that's it. Okay, that's his dad's name, so we got to move on for that. Second thing about this book is chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, right there, and you can read with me. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. God says to this prophet, I want you to marry a woman of unfaithfulness. Now, she might have been a shrine prostitute. We'll talk about that. She might have been just a wayward woman or she might have had a reputation, whatever it was. But he's saying, hey, I know that you love me and you are committed to me, but I want you to marry this girl because I want somebody in this world to know and understand what it's like when a loving God has an unfaithful church. I want someone to feel my pain. I want, and Hosea, it's going to hurt you just like it hurts me, but out of this hurt are some of the most 
incredible, powerful challenges and messages this country is going to hear from you because you're going to bear my burden. You're going to see my hurt. You're going to feel my pain. How many of you can test in, across this room that it wasn't in the greatest moments of joy that changed your life, but it was in the lowest hours of difficulty that God got a hold of you? So God uses all things. Nothing's wasted, even our pain, but God calls them to do it. Now, here's the thing about the prophets. They give you date markers. They don't say it like, hey, back in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? Everybody remember that from childhood? It's stuck with you. It's there. But they give you markers by the kings. He starts off with the kings of Judah. Now, remember, Israel is divided kingdom. It's split in half. It's like the civil war that never got settled. And the southern kingdom tends to be the more righteous, holy group. And so he says, hey, I, just so you know, when I'm talking, let me name off your kings. It would be Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. And if you lived in the kingdom, whether you lived in those times or you were further out, you had a marker. And you said, oh, yeah, back in those days, it would be like me saying, uh, the, the pastor Paul spoke in the days of uh, John F. Kennedy, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and, and Ronald Reagan. You'd be like, oh, back in the 60s and the 70s, gotcha. But here's the thing, he turns to his nation, we know that he speaks in the north, and he says, I spoke in the north, the king then was King Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. What we know about this man is that he was in around the 8th century BC, 786, 722. There's all kinds of details, not even worth the time of day. But when, when they give you a king, this is my habit I would love for you as a community, as a church, to learn to do. Whenever the Bible gives you a king in the prophets, you go to the book of Kings and you go to the book of Chronicles and read about that king. And so we put those verses for the handout that you guys were given this morning when you're coming in. They're there. But when you go to the story of Jeroboam II, this guy that was king under the, uh, and Hosea was in the nation under his rule at that time, they say, a little, they say a little bit about him, but the one thing that stands out is he says he was exactly like his ancestor Jeroboam I and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so if you jump back to Jeroboam the first, you realize a couple of things about this man. When he came to power, he did it through genocide. He wiped out an entire family and had no qualms or problems about it. He was about division. And he said, you know what? We don't need those people in the South that love God and we love God. What's different from them? Just because we don't live like they do, that they're better than us. And he said, you know what? Forget it. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. You don't need to go to those priests and those prophets there. We'll create our own sanctuaries. And so they set up a temple in Dan and in Bethel and in here and in there. And they put up all kinds of church stuff to make church inconvenient. But yet he continued to do this not because he was interested in their relationship with God, but because he did not want the kingdom to mend its broken wounds. He wanted to keep it divided. And if I could just pause as your pastor and speak into your life, you better believe that hell wants you to have you hold on to that grudge against your family, against your husband, against your neighbor, because when you're divided, you're not really whole. This man took power violently, set up Places in the name of worshiping God, which was not worshiping God at all, and would rather hold on to power by keeping people divided than releasing power and unifying them and keeping them on the same page. And that's what hell wants to do with our lives, without a shadow of a doubt. And as you pick up this book and you begin to read it, you're going to notice the way the story goes in the outline. It's really simple. The first three chapters are dedicated to this man's marriage and his problems, 
and God uses that so that he can take the next 11 chapters and describe to you his marriage to the church and his problems with them. It's a metaphor. The same way that Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea, Israel is unfaithful to God, and the church, the bride of Christ, is unfaithful to her husband, Jesus. And he says, let me show how you navigate this. Now some details are in there. You know, God, she gets deserted and he forgives her and it's a powerful story. And then God talks about the sinfulness of Israel and God gives hope. And let me tell you something about the prophetic word of God. How do I know that God's voice is speaking to me? Let me tell you through how you know he's not talking to you. How many of you ever get an idea in your head and you're like, oh, that's God, right? You ever see that? Like, praise the Lord. I love him. He's just so handsome. And you'd be like, girl, what are you doing with that? Maniac. Like some of the things that people have done in the name of love, and then they hang God's name on it. The second I say that God said, told me, now all of a sudden you can't challenge me, right? Don't come to your pastor and say, the Lord told me, because I'm going to push back on you so hard. It's going to be just real uncomfortable. You can't just say, oh, God told me. That settles it, you know, because there are all kinds of people through history that say God told them, and God wasn't telling them that at all. It was the inkling of their heart, their sinfulness of their heart that drew them away to that thing. But here's how you know the voice of God from all the other voices, whether it's yours or the voice of hell, because the devil wants your ear and your heart too. Number one, God always speaks and challenges us. He is willing to hurt our feelings and hurt our life with a little pain in order to spare us of a disaster. He's not afraid to challenge you and me. When you read the prophets, the reason they're the least, the least read and the least understood is because we avoid them like the plague because you have to really be in God's word. And when you start to read it, you're like, you're like, yeah, I, he's totally right. Yeah, that's all messed up. And then all of a sudden, God points his finger at you and you're like, ooh, whew, let me go to the book of Luke and just read about the love of Jesus. The true voice of God and the prophetic voice of God will challenge you to change. And every single one of us, whether we've been in Jesus one minute or decades, he's always refining us to make us more like him because we're not. We need to change. We need to be challenged. But here's the thing that also you'll know that it's not the voice of God. If you're ever being challenged in the depth of your soul and there's never any hope, that's not the voice of God either. If you read the prophets like Hosea or any of the others, God will challenge the daylights out of his people. He will challenge you, but there will always be a promise, always be hope. There'll always be a word that says, but if you change, if you turn, if you abandon this and cling to me, if you confess this and walk away from that, I will restore you. I will bless you. I will multiply you. Here's the thing. God cannot help unrepented sin ever. The only sin that Jesus forgives is repented sin. Now, I'm not sitting there saying, you know, if you missed one when you were confessing, like, you're in trouble. No, it's the heart of that issue. But if in pride, you're like, I'm not rebellious, I'm not a gossip, I'm not, I'm not bitter, I'm not unforgiving, I'm, I'm not, I, there's nothing wrong with me sleeping at, with somebody outside of marriage, there's nothing wrong with me sleeping with that, 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 that man's wife, he, she already left a long time ago. You could totally justify all that stuff. The only sin that God forgives is sin that is repentant of period god doesn't work that way when it's like you just you, like oh, don't worry about god and me we're okay we're cool no no 
And this is the danger. This is the danger of not being in God's word is because God doesn't have the opportunity to challenge you so that he can change you, so that he can bless you. Now here, let me speak to this real quick. Just when I mentioned off some of those sins, some of those are a part of your past. Let me tell you something. You may have made some of those mistakes, but if you're in Christ and you're walking away from those situations or you've walked away from them, hell would probably speak to you right now and say, that's right, you'll never be the person God intended you to be. No, that's a lie. Because the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. You see, the voice of God will always have hope and redemption. God understands what we're not. And he knows that we're a mess without him. And he is always about redeeming us, buying us back, changing us. But there'll always be hope if we respond to him. Always. And so this man steps into a message to his people. And he speaks specifically to Israel. And this is his message. The same way that this woman is unfaithful to the prophet is how my people are to me. And because of her behavior, disaster will come on her life. But if she will turn to me, and return to me, I will not only forgive her, I will bless her and love her. Isn't it wonderful to have a heavenly father that when we come to him with sincerity of heart and brokenness and say, God, I blew it, I don't deserve your forgiveness, he looks at you and he says, I forgive you. The Bible says that he will in no means turn you away, that if you, that how many times should God forgive us or we should forgive others? Peter's like, I forgive somebody, what, seven times? And Jesus looks and says, no, 70 times seven. That's a God that forgives more times that can be numbered, no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times you come up short. If you in brokenness and sincerity turn to Jesus and say, Lord, please forgive me, help me, give me the power to change, he'll forgive you. That's a good God. But it's not just lip service that brings that true repentance and change. It's not good enough to say it with your mouth. You have to have a turning. Now, we talked about in the book of Amos a couple of weeks ago how the word repent was returning, was literally a physical behavioral change. It wasn't just a Lord forgive me, we're all good. It was literally not only Lord forgive me, but now I'm going to turn my back on those things that I've been doing, that I've been, and that I'm saying, and I'm going to begin to walk in the right direction. That's literally what the Hebrew word for this is, shuv, shuv, turn, to turn. And in fact, it's written in the book of Hosea more than any other book in the entire Bible, which, of course, he's got a wife that's constantly running into the arms of sin, running into the arms of other lovers, and he keeps coming back again and again, return to me, return to me. That return means that you're turning from that which is wrong, and you're returning to the God that loves you, that is right, that can change it. And let me tell you something. You might be here this morning and you might be in a very, in the struggle of your life. You might want with all your heart to be free and yet it seems that the sin, whatever it is, is clinging to you. I have never met anyone that when they shuv, when they turn to God, when they return to him, that walked forward and continued to cry out to God for help sooner or later, that enemy, that evil 
you look over your shoulder one day and it's gone forever, never there again. If you're struggling with something today, you know what God says? It's not about perfection, it's about direction. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. God knows you're not perfect. He knows that, that we have an inkling to do what is wrong, but he says, listen, don't just justify it and say, well, me and God... You know what, we're okay. No, no, it's not okay. We're not okay. But what, what is okay is, is when we say, Lord, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to turn again. I'm going to leave this again. My desire is, and if I fall, listen, if I fall and I fail, at least I'm falling forward and I'm failing forward and I'm that much closer to the one that loves me and is delivering me and saving me. See, repentance is not just words. It also demands action a turning in our life. And Hosea uses that statement more than any of the other prophets. And so it says in verse 2, read with me, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, verse 3, I'm sorry, we know that he's called to marry this woman, and he says this, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, uh, and on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So God is basically saying to them, hey, remember this kingdom that started and it was sown with bloodshed? I haven't forgotten and you threw it on the ground like seed. And if you, how many of you, like if you throw seed on the ground and you plant it, you, sooner or later it grows. And they sowed bloodshed and, and wickedness. And God says, listen, the same way that, that I want you to call this kid so, I want you to know that any sin that is unrepented of, I have to deal with and judge. And because this has been left to grow and to sow, that's what the word Jezreel means. Now I'm going to have to judge it. First kid that comes out, judgment. You've sown wickedness. I'm going to judge you for it. And he continues, look at this, he says, so she conceived again, verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord called him, uh, the Lord said to him, call her no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them for the Lord their God, I will not, uh, by the Lord their God, I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. What's amazing about that truth is this, is that the, the top part of the country eventually was destroyed by the Assyrians in war. They were carried off. It's gruesome how the, how the story went down. But the truth was, is God did protect the, the, the nation of Israel. If you read in Isaiah chapter 35 to 40, you'll read the story of how that same army surrounded Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah walked in and said, not a single one arrow will be shot in here. The way that they came will be the way that they go. And it went down exactly like that. How many of you have ever been between a rock and a hard place, a difficult situation, and evil surrounded your life, but you love God with all of your heart. You're doing, you're walking not in perfection, but in the right direction. And hell comes in and says, I'm going to destroy you. And then you, you do what the king did when they gave that letter and said, we're going to destroy you. King Hezekiah, the one of the kings that this prophet mentions, he spreads the, Lord, the, the letter in the, in the temple of God. He brings it to church. He puts the letter, and I love what he does. He says, Lord, do you see what they're saying about you? You see, because when you're a child of God and you love the Lord and your life is committed to him, not in perfection, but in direction... It's not you that they have a qualm with, it's God that they have a qualm with, which means that it's not you that they need to deal with, it's God who deals with them. That's your God. But the northern kingdom of Israel couldn't say that. 
And God said, I have tried to have mercy. I have waited patiently again and again. I can no longer have mercy. I will judge. Finally, verse 6, she conceived again. I'm sorry, verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And she called him, she, she, he said, call, uh, call his name, not my people. For you are, uh, you are not my people, and I am not your God. How sad to live a life with your mouth that says you're close to God, but heaven has to disown you and disclaim you because of your behavior. God says, no, 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 that's not my child. Not mine. Let's do a DNA test. Because if you do a DNA test, do you know what my children do? My children worship me. Do you know what my children do? They honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do you know what my children do? They serve. My children do, they give. My children pray. My children hear my voice and they know my voice. My children don't walk around in bitterness and resentfulness and, and lasciviousness and, and all these things. You know what? They have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. My children bear fruit. I'm sorry, but the DNA is wrong here because the DNA of this child says anything, not my child. And God looked at them and said, you know what? You don't get to hold that tile. You're not my kid. I will not have mercy. You have sown too long in, and you have sown and now it's grown and I need to do something about it. See, whenever God speaks to us, you can know it's his voice because he will challenge you. He will challenge you, but he will offer hope and redemption, and mercy, and forgiveness to the one that cries out to him. And here's the interesting thing. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. I want you to see this for yourself. Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. We're going to just jump around this book a little bit. Just see a little bit. Again, Gomer's unfaithfulness, Hosea, back and forth, same picture of God and his people. Chapter 5, verse 4, listen to this. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them. They know not the Lord. Here's the interesting thing about repentance. Uh, I love this, actually. Ben, I, uh, uh, Professor Ben Phillips, I, we took this from him. I think Stephen preached it just recently, but the statement is this. It's by faith that we come to the cross, but it's by faith through our deeds that we move forward past the cross. Let me explain that to you real quick. I think I'm quoting you on that. If not, just, just embrace that truth because this is a powerful one. When you come to Christ, by the, by the way, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you never had said, Lord, I'm a sinner, you're a savior, please forgive me my sins, you need to do that today and we would love to pray with you. But you come to the cross and Jesus basically says, I've taken your punishment for you if you'll receive the grace I have for you. But in order to do that, you need to look at this and said, that should be me, please forgive me. I turn away from what's wicked, but I look to you. You haven't made any progress in your walk. You just come to faith. How many of you have ever asked somebody for their forgiveness and they just say, nope, I will never forgive you? Or they say it like this in a different way. I'll forgive you, but I will never forget. That's not forgiveness. Give me a break, right? That's not the DNA of Jesus. I understand forgiveness sometimes is a, pro it's a choice and it's a process, but, but here's the thing. You come to the cross and you have nothing to offer God. Lord, I just... I, 
I, I'm so wrong. I want you to know that I'm going to try these. Don't try. Lord, I just tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really begin to. Don't tell me you're going to begin anything. You can't try. You can't do. You can't begin. You can't save yourself. Do you want me to save you? Then I'm a savior. You're a sinner. Just say it. Lord, I'm a sinner. You're a savior. All right. Do you want my forgiveness and mercy? Yes. Do you want me to take your sin away? Yes. And I'll tell you what, anyone that's in this room that has ever done that, it is like somebody taking a million pounds off of your back and you are changed and you are free and you are new and you are completely liberated. And if you have never tried that, you need to today because that's what God wants to do for you. But you didn't do anything to make that happen. You didn't promise anything to make that happen. You just came to him in faith. But now that I'm a follower of Christ, now I need to work out my faith with deeds. Stephen, uh, Stephen Munley's favorite book is James in chapter 2. James says it like this, you say you have faith, that's wonderful. I will show you my works with my faith. You see, if you just constantly, like let's just take it in the marriage conversation here with Hosea and Gomer. Baby, I love you. I love you too, sweetheart. But listen, I'll be here this week, but next week I'm going to be with Jimmy, and next week I'm going to be with Michael, and next week I'm going to be with Jane, and, and that, you know, and just going through that whole list, and, and, and that's not love. And then she comes, I love you. Sooner or later, there has to be a turning away from that behavior. And this is where we begin to move on beyond the cross. We know we're forgiven. We will never earn God's grace. You will ne this isn't about you making up for the wrong you did. This isn't about you becoming somebody perfect. This is about you saying, I love you and I'm grateful for you. And Lord, I'm not going to make any promise, but I'm telling you, I'm going to make all the effort in the world because I want to be more like you. And it's not about my perfection. It's about my direction. And so that's why I'm going to read your word. That's why I'm going to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's why, Lord, like, like I'm going to give. That's why I'm going to serve and I'm going to continue to do that. And you continue those rhythms of Christianity and those, those rhythms of devotion in a relationship with Jesus Christ, sooner or later, one day you look over your shoulder and that thing that was pursuing you and trying to destroy you and pulling you back, it's gone. It's gone. That's the Christian life. But here's the interesting thing about the way that this is worded. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God for the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. If you constantly are doing lip service to Jesus but you're not making a behavioral change in your life, those people you used to hang out with, you cannot hang out with them anymore. That garbage you used to put inside of your system, you can't put it in you anymore. That gossip and that slander that you used to talk, you can't talk that smack anymore. You need to change. That, that, that kind of like, 911 religion that you show up to church whenever there's a crisis in your life or that when it's convenient for you that you do that then you know what if you want 25 percent jesus you're going to have 25 percent savior in your life god says i want all your heart all your soul all your mind all of your strength i want it all and he says now turn from that but it says that their deeds did not permit them to return to the Lord. Listen, if you're giving God lip service, but you're not giving him deed service, you're fooling yourself. You need to make the effort. And it, it, hear me again, it is not perfection, it's what? It's not perfection, it's direction that God's calling you for and forward to. But here's what's scary about this. They did not know the Lord. If I want to shut you up in Hebrew, you know what I say to you? Yada, yada, yada. It's in Hebrew, it's I know, I know, I know. You, you tell me this, and, and, and uh, you like, I know, I know. 
You know, I just, I know, yada, yada, yada. Stop telling me if I want you to hear that from the bottom of my heart that I both know and understand, I will look at you and I'll say, Aneni yodea, I understand, I know. Same word to shut you up, same word to speak to your heart. God said, Adam yada, he knew Eve and they conceived a child. You see, the knowing and the knowledge of God is an intimate knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. Before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And not only does he use the word behavioral change in, in Hosea for repent, shuv, return to me, but he also uses the word yada over and over again because her issues tend to be the kind of yada that Adam and Eve experienced, but God's like, no, you need to know me. You need to experience me. In fact, the Bible says it, and I quoted it earlier, when you were, before you were born, I yada you, I knew you, to know through experience. Do you know him this morning? Or do you have a 911 religion that you just call on God when it's there? Do you know him this morning? Or do you have a 25% savior? Do you know him this morning intimately? Or is it when he speaks and challenges your life about what's wrong with it, you just look at him and say, yada, 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 I know, I know, I know. Or are you able to behold the face of Jesus and be like, I know, Jesus, I know, I know, I understand. Are you able to look at him and say, I know you, Lord, intimately, I love you with all of my heart. See, the people did a couple of things that were really a challenge for them that made it complicated. They forsook God. What does it mean to forsake God? Um, Basically, it's, Andrew, why don't you come up here? I don't want to embarrass you, but just come on up here. Run. Market set, run. Okay. I love the Hebrew language because it's very pictorial. Uh, but it says this, literally. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2. I want you to see this clearly. Chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He's summing up the core issue, one of the core problems that the, the, the whole book is going to try and address, is that they forsake the Lord. How many of you have ever been in a conversation? I just wanted you up here. Good to see you. I love my son. I love both of my sons. With all of my heart. Clean your room. Um, just kidding. He has a very clean room. But wait, wait, wait. Don't go. Don't go. He wants to get out. This, he's, Ethan would be living this and loving it. Andrew's like, please get me out of here. When you forsake someone, it literally means this. You put them behind you. Have you ever been in a conversation with a group of people, some of them you knew and some of you didn't? And while you were in the middle of that conversation, someone walks into the middle of the room and basically looks at you like your gum on the bottom of their shoe or dirt, and they just shut you up and they put you out of the way and they're like, hey, 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 and they just take over the conversation. What they are doing is, is that they are putting that person behind them. That's a forsaking. And yet, in words, so many in the church say, Lord, I love you. I'm following you. Where in actuality, the moment that he speaks something that challenges us that we need to change and align our life to, instead of bringing the change and the discomfort on us, we forsake him and we move him to a new position in our life, behind us. And we move forward into what it is that we want, what it is that we want to hear. 
how it is we want it to happen the way that we want to do it. That was a threshold moment for your life, Andrew. <laughs> Proud of you. So, thank you for going behind me. <laughs> now, let's move it into what's really going on here with the people. God's saying, I need you to turn and return to me, but your deeds, your words say one thing, but your deeds are keeping you from doing this. And he's saying, listen, the people have committed the sin here. The core issue is, is that you're forsaking me. You're putting me behind you instead of putting me in front of you. The psalmist wrote it like this, I have placed the Lord at my right hand, therefore I shall not be moved. Another place he says, I put him behind me and before, you know, but one place David finally gets it and he says, I have put the Lord before me, therefore I shall not be moved. In fact, the prophets like Elijah, when they speak and introduce themselves, they say, who are you? He says, I am the prophet Elijah, whoever ministers Alpanay before the face of God. I'm before the face of God because I face him. He's in front of me. But if you only have a Jesus in front of you on a Sunday morning during a song service and a sermon, and he moves to the back position 10%, 25%, 90% of the rest of the week, you are doing what this verse specifically says. You are forsaking the Lord. And David says, I have put the Lord before me always, therefore I shall not be moved. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not thinking about Jesus when my pipes burst. I'm actually fighting off the enemy and, you know, saying, put a guard over my mouth, Lord. And I'm trying to fix it. I mean, it's not like I'm walking and being, oh, praise the Lord. I just put my hand through a plate of glass. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, I mean, like, it's not that, but I mean that, like, do you know him? Do you constantly say, should I really do that? Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, should I really spend that way? Give me wisdom. God, should I help that person or not? Give me wisdom. It's like that you have God involved in every step of the thing. But here's what the Israelites did. They forsook the Lord. They put God behind him. You know what they did? It didn't just happen overnight. It's not like they said, I don't want anything from God. No, everybody wants a blessing from God. But what they did first, they said, you know what? I'm going to put God's word behind me. I don't have to pick it up. I'm going to put prayer behind me. I don't need to pray and ask God. I'm going to put serving behind me because, you know, that's what the pastors are there for, and I don't need to serve anyone, and, and, and they've got it all worked out. By the way, we need ushers. And then, and then I don't need to give. God helps those who help themselves. I don't need to give. And, they, you put, and then all of a sudden, you put all this stuff behind you, and the Lord says, not my child, man. DNA test has just rejected you. You ain't my kid because my kid reflects these things. My sheep know my voice. And here's the thing, it starts with forsaking God and putting behind us, but then it continues into a second phase. It's that we replace God. We replace God. That's idolatry. Now, idolatry, we always think about some statue, and you're like, I'm not, I'm not worshiping a statue or anything like that. No. You know what you do? You serve your convenience. You serve your, your lusts, your greeds, your desires, and you do what exactly first you move God behind you, but then you put those things as the priorities in front of you. And it's amazing to me how many times people in different seasons in life, when they're married, when they have kids, when they get a career, when they get an education or whatever, you can, don't put Jesus in back of you. You can't do this proper without Jesus in front of you. I look at people all the time and they come up to me and they're like, Pastor, I, I, I love the Lord, but I'm going to be doing this different and I'm going to be doing that different. And I'm like, I can tell you what your life's going to be like in 10 years from now. Straight up. 
Well, no, 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 no. Yeah, I know. You're going to be the exception to the rule. But this is what the Israelites did. They forsook the Lord. They put his voice behind him. They put conversing with him, his challenges behind them, his, his, his behavior of what a child of God looks like. And they not only forsook him, they replaced him. And what's amazing about this is as you go through the land of Israel, you will see altar after altar after object after object. It looked like a real religious place. But this king that they, what we talked about that he was prophesying, his ancestor that he was like, he said, hey, we're not going to have one church, we're going to have two, we're going to have ten. We're going to put one up in Dan and one in Bethel and we're going to offer to God their incense. And they even have the incense shovels that they were going to church and pouring incense on the altar and it looked religious and it looked, it looked like a child of God and they sounded like a child of God and they, they, they seemed to do church like a child of God, but their behavior was anything like a child of God. And it didn't matter how many trinkets they had, how many Easter and Christmas services they went to, they even got so off track that they thought that they were close to God, and yet they set up the same problem that they did when God challenged them at Mount Sinai. He went down and they had golden calves, not just one, they had two now, and they put it up in Samaria, and people were trembling before the golden calf instead of trembling before God Almighty. They had little portable shrines all over the place. They took stones, masabas, and they, 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 they put them up, and they said, you know what, God must be lonely. You know what, I mean, I have a husband, I have a wife, maybe God's got a husband or wife, and then they put up another stone next to it, and they said, this is Mr. God, and this is Mrs. God. And of course, you know, if we're religious, we offer incense there, and that's, that's a holy thing. And, and then they said, hey, well, let's not just pray to God in heaven, let's pray to the heavens. That kind of makes sense. And then, you know what, I can just totally, if I really want to be careful here, I can totally put a cross around my neck, I can put an, a, a God in my house, and if I have that thing, or if I do this, or if I, you know, do that that, like all that stuff, that will help me, and I'm sorry, it won't. There is a lot of paraphernalia to, to idolatry and religion, but at the end of the day, God is a husband, and the church is his bride, and it is a loving relationship that you have to have. It is a daily relationship that you need. It is a challenging and an ongoing relationship, and marriage is the best metaphor for it. I always laugh when new people come in to get marital counseling. First thing that always comes out of them, we think exactly alike. I just look at him, I'm like, yep. There was a time where I used to try and convince him otherwise. Now it's like, no, ain't gonna happen. And then you go home. Now, for the longest time, right? Like you're dating and you can totally put your best foot forward and then you get to go back to your little zones, right? But now all of a sudden you're in the same house and he's not rolling that toothpaste from the back forward. He's squeezing it in the middle and throwing it on the top of the counter and taking off. He's chucking underwear and putting dishes everywhere, and you're like, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and she smelt like perfume and butterflies, and now all of a sudden she rolls over after a good night's sleep with a forgotten moment of brushing the teeth, and the wallpaper curls as so she goes, <sighs> and you're like, dear Lord, what did I get myself into? No, a marriage relationship is challenging. It's hard. Nothing will show you how selfish you are until you're married. Not dating. Dating's easy. You just break away. Engagement's easy. You, you're looking forward. But when you're married with someone, you realize, oh my goodness, the things I used to do, I can't do those anymore. The, de the demands and the places where I said, this is the way it's going to be, I, I can do that and lose my marriage, or I can learn how to 
give and take in this kind of relationship. And God's like, listen, I don't care how much incense you burn. I don't care how you behave or whatever. I'm a relationship, not, I'm not to be used. And uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, flip there real quick. I want you to see this. I just keep telling you to flip there, but I want you to kind of get in the word here. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, there it is again, yada. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants your heart. Not your religious service. He wants your affection and devotion. He wants all of you. He wants you to be willing to change and compromise. It's like that guy that married that girl in the South. Honey, you never say I love you. He said, darling, I said it at the altar, and that's all I need to. I meant it then, and that's it from here forward. No, you can't, you can't, you can't. I should do it with a Boston accent. I said it at the altar, and that's it, baby. Now get in the car. <laughs> We sound pretty funny to the rest of the country. We think, we, we look at people and we're like, we don't have an accent, right? Yeah. But imagine if you just walked into a relationship with someone and that's the way you treated it. And yet sometimes that's how it is with God. Just like, hey, I'll see you once a year, once a month. I'll do a bi-monthly kind of thing. He said, I want every day of your life. I want all of your life. I want you to consider how I bear in this. I want your heart. I want all of you. And then finally, it comes a little bit later where God says, listen, we need a change here because this isn't working. And so he tries to get their attention, so he sends them signs, naming the kids different things. How many of you have ever had God throw a sign in front of you like warning? That's what God did through these children. Imagine naming your kids, you know, Jezreel, sowing to destruction, no mercy, not my people, not mine, doesn't look like me. I mean, and here's the crazy thing of this whole story. And I'm just going to ask the worship team to come up here. Here's the crazy thing of this whole story. As awful as the situation was for Hosea, as horrible and as painful as it was. Listen, in this room, as I'm talking about this metaphor, there are some of you that have experienced this real time. And you're like, there's a pain in this. There's a shame in this. There's a strain in this. God is... First of all, to tell you that nobody knows better than the Lord. That I think actually Hosea's story really is proper, that there needs to be a behavior change. If somebody's saying like, well, you know what? There it is, my biblical proof. You know, God understands or whatever. No, time for a change. One of the most beautiful testimonies we showed here a couple of years ago was in, from Billy Graham Ministries of a husband and wife who were in ministry and the wife cheated with the youth pastor. She conceived, gave birth, and they worked through that mess, and it was messy, but let me tell you what, God can work those things out. When that child was born, instead of him saying, not my people, he gave that son his name. 
And the Bible says it like this, what love it is that God has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. God doesn't have any children other than Jesus, but he adopts the, anyone that will come to him, that wants him, that needs him, that confesses to him. And the beauty of this prophet and the way that we know God's voice is not that it would end on a down note, end of story, without any hope extended, but he goes on and he makes a promise to them. In verse 10, he says this, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. That's what God promised Abraham. And he's saying, I haven't forgotten my promises to you. Some of you in this room, when you were younger, when you were stronger in your walk with Christ, God spoke directly into your hearts. He said, I want to do this with you. I want to be this for you. And somewhere along the way, you lost sight of that. But just like them in Hosea's day, God right now in this room is saying, I still have not forgotten what I said to you. I still have promises. Jeremiah says it like this. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Listen, God is not into ruining your fun. He just is into not seeing you suffer the pain of what a life looks like when it falls apart. And he's looking at you and he's saying, I know what your life's gonna be like 10 years from now. Return to me. And he goes on and he says this, yet the number of your children, Israel, shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said, you are not my people, it shall be said of them, children of the living God. That's you and me, friend. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, they shall be gathered together and they shall be appointed for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land and great shall be the day of Jezreel, the same name of sowing to judgment. Now God says, we're gonna sow a new seed and it's going to be unity and mending, a nation that was ripped in half. We're gonna do it. You know what, You, some of you in this room, I'm telling you right now, I feel this in my heart. There are some of you in this room, you really wanna go forward with Jesus, but you're stuck in a rut because you won't pick up the phone and you can't even say why you're angry at that person. You're just still angry about him. And you know what the Lord says? It's time for you to sow and Jezreel in a new direction for unity and forgiveness. That's your revival and your miracle waiting to happen. Not only that, but look at chapter two, verse one, and say to your brothers, uh, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. You see, we serve a God in heaven who if we, in our worst hour, in our worst moment, in our deepest failures, are just willing to turn, not for perfection, but direction, and say, I was wrong. Forgive my pride. Change my life. Have mercy on me. But if you want to hold on to that grudge and you want to hold on to your right to be right and all that, you can do it right to your destruction. And God will look at you and say, time for a DNA test, not my children. You have sown in all the wrong directions. No, thank you. End of story. I can't help you. I remember being in an office with a friend of mine that started beating his wife. And it was, it was so... The whole situation was so gross because this was my friend. I looked at him, I said, listen, we're friends, but friendship does not mean agreement. I do not agree with you. This is all wrong. And then his whole marriage and his whole life spun off into a direction where his wife, who I can't blame her for not wanting to be with him, but then she started being with all kinds of other people. And it was just madness and craziness. If you want to hold on to your pride and you want to hold on to your right to be right, you can do it. And I can tell you, and God can tell you where your life is going to be two weeks, two years, two decades from now, but you already know where that path goes. But it is never too late to become the person that God intends 
intended you to be, but it demands that you turn, that you turn towards God, and God will look at you and say, there you are. That's my child. Lord, but I just, like, I'm such a mess. I just You don't worry about that. I forgive you. Oh, but God, you know what? I just, I can't promise you that I could just be and do it. I just, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail you. Well, then you know what? When you fail and fall, if you're falling towards me, how about I catch you? Oh, God, I just, if I am ever judged for what I did, oh, my goodness. I remember I celebrated after seven years of being a Christian because it was seven years where I reached a statute of limitation on stuff. But every day I heard a siren go off. I was like, oh, my gosh, they're coming for me. And then I finally reached that point where I'm like, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. You'll be like, oh God, I, I, I just don't deserve mercy. And God will be like, are you kidding me? I'm the God of all mercy. I'll forgive you. I want us to just sing this song one more time. And as this is happening, here's, here's what I'd like to do. You know, a lot of people are like, why come to the altar? You know, pastor, you just want us up here because it's your ego, like you accomplished something. I, we, 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 we're easing into altar calls. And we're not, but coming up here and taking a space isn't about me. It's about you and it's about God. And what I'd like to do this morning is something different. I don't want to line the front with people to pray for you. What I want you to do is find a spot and pray to the one who loves you before you ever were knit in your mother's womb. The one who knows everything that you are and my goodness, everything you're not, he knows. The one that looks at you and says, don't promise me anything, just stay close to me. I'll change you. Maybe you're here today and you're kind of like, I just need mercy and God's got it for you. You might be like, oh my goodness, I just is so feel so far from God. God, look at you, and he wants to save you here at this place. Children of the living God. And as they lead us in this song, the first note that they strike, my challenge to you is this, that you would get up from your spot, and you would find a spot here, and you just kneel, and you just have a conversation with God that would not be, oh Lord, please, you know that I'm worthless, and you know, maybe that's the place where you might need to start or whatever, but that would be like, oh God, it's so hard for me to think that you'd have mercy on me, but please do. It's so hard for me to call myself a child of God because the DNA of my behavior is so far from that. But if you'll just help me, I'll fall forward instead of backwards from now. I'll, instead of you getting put behind me, I'll put you before me always. And Lord, make me like you. Make me like you, Jesus. Don't just change my life, change lives through me. And I believe if you come here and you take that prayer, or you, you take that spot here, that God will speak to you. It's never too late to be the person God intended you and wanted you to be. And it doesn't mean that everybody comes up here that they're in a catastrophic situation. Because I have watched bitterness and unforgiveness and stubbornness destroy people's lives faster than heroin. the invitation. It's yours to take. God loves you and he's here for you. I just ask for just about three minutes or whatever. We just kind of respect that. And if for some reason you slip out, the doors are still under construction, so don't push them hard. 
but just kind of keep the tone down out there because you have children, we do need you to get them, but let's take this moment and take this opportunity to draw near to God, to put the Lord before us, to turn our backs on those things and turn our eyes upon Jesus, amen? Gather all who wander, hostages of shame, miracles unfolding at the mention of the name. Now darkness is fleeing. 